listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. Uh, grateful to, to be with you guys and walking along uh, the story of Christmas. We uh, we decided to go kind of nostalgia this year, if you will. Like often, I think at Christmas we get so familiar with the story of Christmas that sometimes it feels like I wonder how we can engage and enter into it with some level of freshness. And there is a sense in which we have some sort of expectations of the Christmas season. And, you know, we hear the stories and we, we enjoy the, the music and the content of what Christmas is. But uh, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that maybe in parts we sanitize Christmas. We make it fairly palatable to the world around us. And I think sometimes some of the details of the things and the events that were transpiring uh, tend to be a, a place where we just we, we miss some of those details and just maybe maybe fast track all the way to, to Jesus in a manger. And so last week, the encouragement, as we, we looked at the, the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth and, and John, uh, the Baptist coming into the, the world, um, was just this sense of wanting to remember the story, that we wanted to, to pull back far enough and, and begin to, to realize that there was substance and significance of what God was doing and planning in the context of those things. But what I want to invite you to think about this morning is that the, the drama that unfolded in the context of the situation of both John's birth and subsequently Jesus's, the, the conditions surrounding the environment were not optimal or conducive to faith. It wasn't in that moment necessarily easy to believe. Herod was the king of the, the time, or sort of the, the ruler over Judea, and, and he's got quite, quite a resume that tend to give us some insight as to the, the culture and the environment that was surrounding the situation with the nation of Israel. We're already realizing that there was 400 years of silence, and it's important to sit on that because you have over four generations that are sitting there and, and doing the traditional things, hoping to elicit God's attention. Zechariah, as the priest, had been going to the temple year after year. They cast lots, and, and it was his turn to finally show up and be at the altar of incense and meeting with the Lord in a specific way. But part of the expectation would be that everyone else, for the last 400 years, the priest that had done that, had done it solely out of tradition. They hadn't heard a voice from the Lord in generations. And so Zechariah wasn't sure what necessarily would happen at the time, but my guess is that he would expect it was going to be like every other year for the last 400. And so even embedded in the text that we talked about last week in the beginning of Luke 1, I think we can connect some of that familiarity. You and I have walked through the Christmas story probably numerous times throughout our entire life. We've anticipated and we know the ending and the results and we hear about shepherds and wise men and, and yet we, we come and we're wondering if there's a, a fresh voice from the Lord. Is there something that God can do uniquely in the midst of a Christmas tradition that would, 
would, would allow us to understand that God is still speaking. Well, I think as we look at some of the details of the story, there might be some deeper realizations of the environment that took place. As we remember the story, which was the encouragement from last week, remember that the, the details were significant. Herod, the ruler of Judah, let me just read to you a bit of his resume. So he came to uh, leadership at a, at a pretty young age, um, but it didn't take very long for him to be probably one of the most paranoid, controlling leaders that you could imagine. He had 10 women as wives with 15 children. I suppose with 10 wives, you have a favorite, and he did. He had one woman that he was really, really interested in above the others, and in the context of those things, she bore him two sons. But he gave all of the leaders and the soldiers in that time frame so a charge that if he was ever traveling and something happened to her, their responsibility was to murder her so that no one else would get a chance to be in a relationship with her. Well, apparently she was also a fairly outspoken woman, had a lot of opinions, and there were some arguments that took place in the time. And in the process of that, what Herod decided to do was to murder her parents. And so he had her parents executed. And then in the process of those things, after I guess some level of contentious fight, he had both of her sons executed. And then out of jealousy and frustration and uncertainty, he actually had her executed. <laughs> and then fell into some level of depression and was sick over the fact that he lost his favorite wife by his own hand. And so in the process of those things, his concern begins to grow about maintaining authority over the situation. And so Matthew gives us this indication that Herod decides because the wise men knew that Jesus was going to be born and he was going to be called king of the Jews. All of a sudden that incited something in Herod. And so he was so worried that he was going to be overthrown that what he ended up doing is beginning the process of trying to execute any young Jewish boys at the time so he would remain king of the Jews. Not an awesome environment for faith. Right? I mean, it's just, it doesn't set the stage for feeling like this is an optimal scenario for God to speak, and everyone saw that God spoke, and Gabriel shows up, and it's just all roses and awesomeness, and everybody just loves everything. There's a difficulty that comes with those things. At the end of his life, is what Josephus tells us, that he began to get sick with symptoms, fire glowed in him slowly, which did not so much appear to touch outwardly, but augmented his pains inwardly. So he ended up growing sick inside, and you couldn't tell if it was a disease or some level of mental illness or emotional turmoil, but he had two final requests. And just imagine for a moment, if you were saying, all right, you got two things that you want to happen when you die. These are the things that you're going to leave behind. You want to make sure this is your legacy. The two things that Herod wanted when he passed away, performed at his death, was this. To execute the recently imprisoned Jewish elders so that the people would mourn during his death. <laughs> the people knew, he knew, that the people would not be sad if he died. But he so certainly wanted them to feel a level of sadness that he executed the Jewish elders that were in prison at the time. 
That's a great will and testament. And finally, his last desire, the thing that he wanted most in the context of finishing off his life is to execute his son. Not a great dude, right? We're not putting this guy up of saying, look how great he ruled. The environment and the culture was so toxic within the context of that time that the thought that it would be optimal for people to come to faith and understand that faith was just kind of a natural, easy thing, you would think, okay, after 400 years, God speaking, and you have this thing happening to Zechariah, there would still be an embedded level of uncertainty. And yet, you get Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, married to Elizabeth, whose name means God's promise, or God is my oath giving birth to a son named John, which means God is gracious. Okay, we got some supernatural things working here. In the midst of all of the challenges of life and even the most toxic political environment that you can imagine, you have God speaking and working and initiating all of these things that had happened even at the beginning of Zachariah's life, even with the name that God had given or Zachariah's parents had given him. God remembers. There's, there's small, small, small relief in the moment. Maybe God can work in the most difficult of circumstances. Married to Elizabeth. Now they're barren, so she's, they're both older in years, and yet God moves. Gabriel shows up and says, you're going to have a son. And Zachariah's like, uh... We're kind of old for this kind of business. I'm not sure this is going to happen. And God makes him mute. So the husband, for nine months, can't say a word as his wife's pregnant. Like, that could be great, maybe. It could also be somewhat detrimental. And so in the process of all of those things, John is born. You get this sense of the, 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 the reality of what God is going to give is the one who is preparing the way for Jesus. The name that he will be given. God is gracious. These reminders were not lost on the nation. And I would hope would not be lost on us. I think part of the story is we're jumping into Luke chapter 1 and we're going to move now to the announcement of Mary being with child is that God is involved in life's details. There is not something that is outside of his purview, the, the work that he's doing, that God meets us in life's details. No matter how challenging that might be, maybe it's just a toxic environment around us. Maybe it's been decades since you've heard the voice of God. Maybe You've come to church faithfully. Sunday after Sunday, you've read your Bible, you've prayed and sought God's favor, and it's felt like it's fallen on deaf ears. And, and yet, in the process of the Christmas story, the one thing that we would want to anchor our lives to, the, the remembering of God's work, even in the midst of what we would perceive as silence and distance from the God of the universe, is that God is it work. God meets us in life's details. Why do we want to remember the story? Because the story reminds us that God sees us. 
We're not somehow invisible to our own creator. He knows the intricacies and the details of our lives. At this moment, this very second, as you sit in this church, there is not a moment where God doesn't know exactly what you feel right now. The uncertainty, the hope, the anxiety, the fear, whatever it might be, you are an open book to the creator of the universe. No longer do we need to hide. I would suggest to you that in part the Christmas story gives us that relief. We don't need to live in secret or somehow prove ourselves to God. We, we understand that God sees us for who we are and is working in life's details. Behind all events stands God's unfolding plan. This is a, a nature and a characteristic of God himself. As we, we get ready to jump into the text in Luke chapter 1, what we begin to understand in a fuller context is that, that God is always working. He's on the move. Whether we see, feel, or understand specifically what that is, there is a level of relief in that all events, in all of the universe at all times, God is unfolding his plan. There's a, a hope that God can give us in the midst of those things that through a relationship with him, we're, we're able to rest in some of that truth. Now, that doesn't mean that just because we know that all of our anxiety or fears about the future are relieved, but it means that we're able to take our gaze off of our current circumstances and maybe just for an instant be able to look up and say, I, I bet there's more. I bet there's things that I don't see. I wonder if there's things that I don't fully know. Christmas tells us that there is. Absolutely there is. First, you have this picture of this couple, this priest, and they're married and they're barren and they, they get a promise that, that they're gonna have a child. And then in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26, you get this other sense that you get this contrast. There's also a woman. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph, meaning that they're, they're committed to one another. But she's young. She's not barren. You don't get a lens or a picture that she's suffering. She's doing life in the most normal and predictable of ways. Now, certainly she's growing up on the wrong side of the tracks. Nazareth isn't known for being awesome where all the great leaders come from. It's just some of that kind of rural, just getting along with life, doing the best that you can. There's nobody coming out of Nazareth that's some sort of future leader or something that's going to transform the world. These are people that are just living life, doing the best they can. But you don't get a sense that Mary's confused about life. She's got her life planned out. She's getting ready to be married. There is a sense of love and commitment and connection in the midst of a relationship with Joseph. Things are actually going pretty good. You see in the first few verses of Luke chapter one where you get this understanding of people just doing things but the sense of feeling like they just got dealt a bad hand in life. And yet God shows up in the midst of that bad hand and says, look, I've got more plans than you ever thought were possible. And you're, it's crazy what's gonna happen. And God's gonna give you a son and he's gonna be named John. He is God is gracious, that God remembers and that God is fulfilling his promises. And it's gonna begin to to start to 
cascade into places where people are seeing maybe there's more to this than I see. And then, then you get this other contrast where life is just kind of going along as it's going along. And, and God visits Mary. Look with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 1. And here's what the text will tell us in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, or O blessed one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern the sort of greeting that this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call him the name Jesus. God saves. You see, all of these things are now beginning to start to intertwine. There's a thread of, of God's preemptive and, and preparatory work that not only does God remember, and God, he's made his promises, and God is gracious, but but now, in the name of Jesus, God saves. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The most practical questions you could ask, I would assume. And verse 35, And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I want you to sit on verse 37, maybe even memorize it, probably not that difficult, highlight it, circle it, do something where this gets embedded in your daily walk, and we'll return to it in just a second. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Miraculous story, amazing, in the most routine, typical, expected parts of life, God shows up. In the midst of the details of her just figuring out all of her nuptials and getting married and all of the context of those things, she is met by the angel Gabriel with news that is life-altering for her, but world-altering. Matthew tells us that at the appointed time. You get this sense that God is communicating that this was pre-planned. That there's something that God was doing and it was a specific time and a specific situation where God was going to intervene in this world. Why? Because God had made promises that he was always going to keep. This 400 years of silence was going to come to an end. God promised such a thing. And we also get promises in the book of Isaiah and other prophets that are communicating to us that it will come through a virgin birth. The nation of Israel knew that these things were possible. 
but they had no idea that it could be possible in their time. And I wonder if that's very true for many of us. I think many of us believe that God can work. I think if I said in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God, you would say, absolutely. I'd get a hearty amen from every single one of us. But then we look at the context of our lives and find ourselves wondering if that work that God can do that seems impossible is true for us or just true for others. If the, if the truth of the Christmas story of the, the power and the work of God's perfect plan includes your life and mine, like right now where we sit, do we serve a God that does the impossible? Yes. Every day, yes and amen. We serve a God that is working beyond what we can see, think, or feel. The context of your life, the predictions of what you think might or might not happen, even my prayers and your prayers of what we hope God can do pale in comparison to the work that God's going to do. Christmas not only gives us hope, but I think there's a part where it embeds in us that peace. That even in the midst of my prayers, I believe that God can do more than we can ask or imagine. According to what? His riches, which are in Christ Jesus. The greatest thing that God has ever done is save you and me. Offer us an eternal relationship forever that you and I can find ourselves in an intimate relationship with the God of the universe where we can surrender our lives to his care and we can trust that his care is good, righteous, and right. I think that that's the second portion of this is not only does God meet us in the details, that God stands behind all of the human events that he's carrying through on his plan. But I would like to suggest to you that the real issue that God is addressing is that people are estranged from God and oppressed. The reason for John, Zachariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, and more specifically, Jesus, is that people are lost. We are outside of a relationship with God. We are oppressed by either the culture, the society, our circumstances, or our sin. That we are under the dominion of darkness, as the Bible says, and we find ourselves living under this oppression. And yet, the reality of Jesus coming at this appointed time was for the very purpose that his name indicated. He saves. Saves from what? Well, he rescues you from punishment and enmity with God. He rescues you and me from the patterns of our own sin. He rescues us from ourselves and our diminished expectations of the power that God can do in each of our lives. He moves in such a way that even though there is nothing we did to elicit his attention or demand his favor, he invites you and me to realize that we are rescued by the saving power of Christ. Because we've been estranged, because sin lives inside of our hearts, because there is a, a distance from our relationship with God, the purpose that God is addressing, the reason for Jesus' entrance into the world is because we're estranged from the God of the universe. Isaiah 9.6 gives us that indication, right? That, that is, it talks about her giving birth to her son. He'll be called, but wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. And I love that, except so often I think when we look at that passage, we say, wonderful counselor. Well, that means that he's just wonderful. 
I don't think that that's what the word means. It actually means incomprehensible. It means full of wonder. What what if that was the reality? That so often we contained Christ, the story of Christmas, into this box of a a baby in a manger and, and stories of shepherd and wise men and no room at the inn and all of those things those details are true but we've sanitized it to the point that we miss the reality for his coming he is full of wonder incomprehensible mighty in his power full of wisdom and cares about you and me why give him the name jesus well for that very reason he saves Through the lenses of the Christmas story, you have been given a rescuer and invited to be rescued. And yet, often, I think at times, we're resistant to it, surrendering our lives to Christ and realizing that he's the one that's in control and we can trust ourselves to our tender tender care, I think sometimes is a delicate balance. In Vermont, and this is true in any state, but it was particularly true of me in Vermont when we were there, is that you have you had speed limits, like you do everywhere else on the roads, but during the winter time, apparently, what I've been told is that um, if you are driving down the road and even going the speed limit, but somehow get in an accident, but you weren't speeding, they can still give you a ticket. And the ticket is this. You're driving faster than the conditions allow. So, it's snowing, there's ice on the road, it's raining. You can get into an accident and, and actually the, the cops can come and they can help you out and then they can hand you a ticket and saying, you were driving the speed limit but you were driving too fast. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that that's maybe one of the challenges that we face in our own Christian life. We're driving above the conditions. I think what the Lord is calling us to is to live life at the speed of faith meaning that what we're doing is we're recognizing that there will be seasons of our life, moments where life will be crouching in and we were so ready to just accelerate all of the answers and figure out all of the problems that anxiety, fear, anger, worry puts our foot on the accelerator and said, let's just get through this as fast as we can. Let's just, let's just move. I just want this done. And yet sometimes, and maybe even during this Christmas season, the goal is to pause. Maybe, maybe we need to slow down, not speed up. Maybe we need to live lives at the speed of faith. And, and what I mean by that is that we're allowing God to set not only the pace, but the rhythm of our walk with him. The daily reminders of our trust. The daily reminders that we have a need and that need is him. The daily reminders that he is enough. And as we look back on the history of even the birth of Christ, all of the details in the midst of a tumultuous society were still being worked out. Shockingly, even though Herod was in charge of Judea, God was, not, God was still on his throne. He was still working. It was not as though he was trying to figure out what to do because Herod was such an idiot. <laughs> Just because he was such a horrific, toxic leader... It wasn't as though God was like, well, didn't see that coming. Guess I'm going to have to figure out something else. God was working in the midst of all of those things, even in the silence. So if we're going to live lives at the speed of faith, let me suggest to you, I think, what this text is telling us. God is acting in human history to carry through on his forever plan. 
an eternal kingdom. It was a moment in time. It was a specific event. The details are given to us historically. But the impact and the purpose of that event in time was so that we would understand that there is something more in store than what you and I think and feel right now in this moment. If nothing is impossible with God, then the only answer to the challenges of life and the things that we experience and even not wanting to sanitize Christmas, but to really see it for all its fullness in, in technicolor, in vivid 3D, in 4D, if we could see how vivid God is and working in the midst of our life, our response is one very similar to that of Mary. I'm your servant. I will do, let me be done according to your will. If I can maybe translate that into our own society or maybe make it relevant for each of us. Maybe that's the voice of faith that comes through. God, I'm your servant. Do whatever you need. Whatever you want in my life, I trust your tender care. That I want to live life at the speed of faith. Meaning that daily I will need to, to pause and to remember that I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the one getting to accelerate my life in such a way so I get my plan. I'm at your will. I surrender my life to what you deeply desire. Because like last week, we're called to remember the story. This week, we're called to respond in faith. Remember the story. Certainly look at the details of Luke as Luke unfolds very uh, specifically and very honestly about the very details of what transpired from, from Zechariah on. But, but we can't leave it there, can we? We can't just let it sit as a great Christmas story that we share every year and talk about the reality of a baby in a manger. No, I think what the invitation is, is, is bring all of yourself to this moment. All of your pain, all of your uncertainty, all of the hopes and dreams for the future, whether you find yourself in a similar situation like Zachariah and Elizabeth, where things just are not working out the way that you hoped. Or maybe you're just doing life and things don't seem that bad. And you're just walking along doing things like Mary was. And then all of a sudden God intrudes and God is at work in all the details of life. And so if we remember the story, the invitation is to respond in faith. Meaning that we duly truly trust that the character and the nature of God and his perfect promises and perfect plan will be realized no, how, no matter how uncertain things feel at this moment that we cannot or we at least begin to fight against fear, anxiety, anger, uncertainty, pushing down on the accelerator and saying, let's just get this over with. What we want to say is, Lord, do what only you can do. Because if I'm a, if I'm your servant, and I realize that I serve a God who does impossible things, and all I want you to do is do what only you can do, because all I see is what's possible. What you see is what's impossible. So can we live our lives during this Christmas season, and maybe for the foreseeable future, until the eternal kingdom that God provides for us, live our lives at the speed of faith? I think that's the invitation this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we do believe and are 100% confident that impossible is not in your vocabulary. It's not a word that you're aware of. There's nothing that you can't do. And because of that, we find ourselves 
grateful, yet I know in my own heart there are times where I'm apprehensive. I see my story, I see what's before me, and I'm actually uncertain whether or not I have the faith to trust you. I want to believe you're good, and sometimes I wrestle with whether or not it's true. So I would pray that you would bring other people around us, that we would find ourselves encountering your word, and that you would remind us that you've always been good, and you always will be good. You are faithful. You always will be faithful. You see us in our pain and the challenges that we face in this life, and yet so often we just feel like the version of our life is, well, it's just better than the one that we think you have for us. And we confess, Lord, that we're wrong. Give us hearts to live lives at the speed of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.